Welcome to a very special Pride Month episode of the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I'm joined again today by Lauren Baer, foreign policy expert, attorney, and Democratic candidate for Florida's 18th Congressional District. Thanks for coming on and happy Pride Month. Thanks. Happy Pride, Jordan. Thank you. So if elected, you would be only one of a handful of LGBTQ folks in Congress. What does that mean to you? Well, you know, it it means quite a bit to me. Uh, it, It means a lot to me personally, um, but it means the most to me in terms of what it stands for, for our country. Um, I'm just someone who fundamentally believes that when Congress represents the diversity of this country, we all benefit. And it would be an incredible thing to be an LGBT elected member of Congress. You know, what those of us in the LGBT community know and understand is what's on the line um, this year in 2018 in particular for each and every individual who belongs to a minority community, whether that is a religious community, an ethnic community, whether that's the LGBT community or women. Um, and there's just so much to to fight for. So for me, this would be, uh, you know, obviously a landmark uh, in the context of one of being uh, just a few uh, similarly situated people in the country, um, but a really weighty obligation in terms of my responsibility to to fight for everyone whose uh, rights are in jeopardy right now. So there's this misconception that LGBTQ folks already have protections on a federal level. A majority of Americans believe that, but that's not true. Could you tell us what the reality is of LGBTQ rights on a federal level and in your state of Florida? Yeah, I mean, what you mentioned there is exactly right. I think there are a lot of folks who think that the fight for equality uh, was over with marriage equality, but it it wasn't. That's truly um, just the beginning, and there are protections lacking um, on both the federal and and state level. Right now, we don't have a federal uh, non-discrimination act that includes LGBT persons, uh, and that's why it's so important um, that we we pass the Equality Act, which would make sure uh, that LGBT persons are, are protected in the workplace, are protected in terms of public accommodation all across this country. And, you know, Florida is is a state in particular um, where there's uh, still quite a bit of risk uh, being a member of the the LGBT community. Uh, Across much of this state, you can be fired because you're gay. You can be denied uh, accommodation or entrance to a restaurant um, because you are gay. And, And that fundamentally limits your ability to be a a full member of society. So these are things that that we need to deal with at the state level and we need to deal with at the federal level as well. Uh, And we're doing it in the context of a very tricky situation where not only do we lack 
forward movement at the moment. Uh, but we got an administration that's actively trying to, to push us back. Um, we've seen in the Trump years a, a new ban on transgender people serving uh, in, the, uh, in the military. We've seen an effort to stop counting LGBT persons in the census. And, uh, you know, just a week ago, we saw the, the outcome of the Supreme Court decision in the, uh, the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision, um, which allows uh, individuals to use religious liberty uh, as a reason to deny LGBT persons the same rights and benefits as everyone else. So stakes couldn't be higher for our community this year, and there's a lot of work to be done. So the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision was really huge. It got a lot of news coverage, but there's been a fair deal of confusion as to what it actually means. Could you tell us about what exactly it means for the LGBTQ community? Sure. So, you know, the decision was decided on uh, narrower grounds uh, than it could have been um, in not a technicality. Um, but, but the court essentially decided that the, the Colorado commission um, that had made a decision that the, the baker had to, in fact, provide a cake to the, the gay couple um, was an error and did not give uh, proper deference to his uh, legitimate religious beliefs. And there was language in that decision um, that the LGBT community should be um, happy about, uh, cautiously optimistic about, to the extent that there was a reaffirmation of our rights. But what we know, um, because we've seen it happening over the past many years, the past many decades, um, is that this decision is going to be used uh, by those who would like to see our rights limited, by those who are angry uh, that gay marriage uh, ever came to be in this country as an excuse to keep filing lawsuits, keep pushing back, to, to test the limits of whether LGBT persons can really live freely and equally uh, in our society. So the way I look at it, um, in some ways, this is a rallying cry for us. It is uh, a reason that all of us need to be on guard uh, for those individuals and organizations, um, including our own government that would like to roll back our rights. And um, we need to be fighting in order to, uh, to preserve them. Absolutely. Now, I'd like to talk about some recent issues and events surrounding the LGBTQ community. Very recently, Roxana Hernandez, a transgender asylum seeker, died after being detained by ICE. She is the sixth known detainee to die in ICE custody in the fiscal year 2018. And ICE has a very disturbing history of abusing transgender undocumented Americans. The Bureau of Justice Statistics has estimated that on average, six 65 transgender women are detained by ICE every day, most of whom are locked up in men's facilities, which is alarming in and of itself, but also because about a third of transgender women experience sexual assault in prisons. Could you tell us what you want to do to protect transgender undocumented Americans and to help transgender people be respected and safe in the prison system? Yeah, so this is a, you know, look, this is a concern of, of mine, and it extends uh, not just to transgender immigrants and asylum seekers, uh, not just transgender persons in detention, uh, but frankly, to transgender individuals all across American society, uh, because what we know is transgender persons are some of the most 
vulnerable individuals, those who are most likely to experience violence uh, in their lifetimes, whether that is in detention or whether that's on the streets. Uh, transgender persons also have some of the highest suicide rates in our community. Now, uh, you know, if you look at the news related to our immigration system in the past many weeks, uh, there are many reasons for us to be concerned, frankly, about the, the lack of humanity um, that we are showing to people who are coming across uh, the border, um, seeking nothing more um, than a, a better life in our country. And uh, we're, we're seeing a, a failure to live up to the best of the values that we represent um, as, as a country. And so, you know, what I hope is that when it, when it comes to the immigration system, um, just as I have concerns for children coming across the border, that we're, we're treating transgender individuals um, with the dignity and the, the respect that they're entitled to under the law. It's really great to hear you say that. We don't hear politicians often acknowledge the recent wave of anti-LGBTQ and especially anti-transgender violence we've seen in the past two years. Now, I'd like to go into a bit more detail about immigration because Florida has the fifth highest undocumented population population in the United States with about 450,000 undocumented Americans living in the greater Miami, Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach area. Under Donald Trump, ICE and CBP's activities have increased significantly. In 2017 alone, Florida saw a 75% spike in immigration arrests. Now, of course, you support the DREAM Act and have spoken out against the Trump administration's family separation border policy, but there's this misconception out there that the DREAM Act is the highest bar we can possibly set when it comes to citizenship, and that the brutality we're seeing from ICE and CBP right now is the fault of Trump. But in reality, the DREAM Act would only cover about 30% of the undocumented population, meaning that the family separation we're seeing denounced at the border would be entirely legal in a different sense throughout the country through the deportation of those who don't fit under the Dreamer label. And ICE and CBP have always served as detention and deportation mechanisms rife with abuse, torture, and even murder under Obama as well as Trump. The fundamental purpose of ICE, as stated in a 2003 DHS memo, is to deport, quote, all removable aliens and the history of this perspective originates in court decisions, legislation, and ideologies of the Chinese exclusion era, particularly the 1893 Fong Yuting court decision. With all this being said, do you support abolishing ICE? No, I, I don't support abolishing ICE, but I think we, we need to make sure that our immigration system um, is, is just, is fair, and is serving the purposes for for which it was intended. Um, you know, I take a step back and I think about the fact uh, that immigrants um, have always been the, the at the core of American society. We are a country of immigrants. Unless you are a Native American somewhere along the lines, uh, your family came here from elsewhere and they may have come here seeking a better life. They may have come here seeking freedom from persecution, um, but we have built a great and strong and diverse country uh, because people have come here and become Americans. They have contributed in so many ways to this 
social fabric of our country, to the vitality of our country, and frankly, to the economic prosperity of our country. And, and what we're dealing with now is, like you said, having to, to grapple with multiple separate but distinct issues um, at the same time. You know, when you're talking about, for example, asylum seekers, these are individuals who have rights under international law uh, and under U.S. law, um, and we're obligated um, under uh, those statutes to guarantee individuals who are coming to our country seeking freedom uh, from persecution to have a fair asylum hearing to make sure we're not sending folks back to places where they're going to be persecuted because of the color of their skin or because of their religious beliefs. That's a separate issue uh, from the issue of, of dreamers, uh, young folks who were brought here um, by their parents at an age when they didn't have decision-making power themselves, but are as American as as anyone else, folks who are often holding jobs, even serving in our military. And like you said, we, we've got to be providing a pathway to citizenship for them. Um, but we've also got to be looking at, you know, the, as you said, the, the broader issues in our immigration system. How do we make sure that we are attracting and retaining high-skilled immigrants? Do we consider pathways to citizenship for individuals who might not have legal status at the moment, um, but are as American as their neighbors and contributing to our society? And it would be to our benefit to have them stay here. And how do we do this all in the context of a system um, that is also designed to and must keep us safe, must make sure that we're not allowing individuals who can do harm to cross our borders? So it's it's a complicated uh, scenario. Some Something I know from the inside out, from having worked on uh, immigration cases as, as a lawyer trying to help uh, vulnerable asylum seekers get asylum, and from having been in the U.S. government where I was looking at, at refugee policy. It, it's complicated, and we can't deal with it by you know talking in broad strokes about abolishing federal agencies. What we've got to talk about is how we adhere both to our own law and the best of American values to enable this country to continue to thrive and continue to be a place um, that welcomes those seeking the American dream. Could you tell us a bit more about your background as an attorney, those immigration cases you're speaking about? Yeah, sure. Starting when I was in, in law school, and this is one of the things that I was you know, most proud of, uh, I participated in an immigration clinic uh, starting my first year in, in law school. And what that allowed us to do as law students is to work alongside supervising attorneys uh, and help to represent individuals who had come to the United States seeking uh, asylum. There's there's one case in particular uh, that sticks with me, a woman who I represented starting my first year of law school. She had been persecuted uh, in um, her country of origin because of her ethnic group. She had been brutally gang raped. She had watched a large number of her family members disappear. Uh, and she had a, a credible fear um, that she would meet the same death um, as her family members if if she stayed in uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We represented her, and uh, in the first hearing that she had, um, she was denied. 
But in the second hearing that she had two years later on appeal, um, her asylum claim was granted. And in the intervening years, she had learned English. She had gotten a job. She had come to this country and fell in love. And in later years, she would become married and have a child. And she is now an American citizen and one of the proudest Americans um, that I know. And I look at her story going from the depths of despair to finding hope in our country and a promise of a better future, not only for her, uh, but for her child now as well. And I think this is the best of what our country represents. And it was the kind of work um, that I was proud to do. So something else really interesting about your work as an attorney is that you successfully convinced the U.S. Supreme Court to limit the reach of Citizens United. Could you tell us about this case and how you had worked to overturn the Citizens United decision in Congress? Yes, so to clarify here, we we were working to to overturn Citizens United. Um, I was working um, on a a case uh, that the Republican National Committee had uh, filed, and they were trying to declare uh, certain parts of our campaign finance laws unconstitutional. And what happened essentially was that while we were in the middle of working on our case, the Supreme Court passed Citizens United, a decision that a lot of folks are are quite familiar with, um, which opened up the floodgates for corporate money in politics. Now, what the, uh, the RNC did after that Citizens United decision was essentially try to say that because of Citizens United, that was another reason why um, all of our campaign finance laws should be invalidated, why there should be essentially no restrictions on the role of money in politics. And what our team was able to convince the Supreme Court was that Citizens United actually had limitations. And just because they had opened the doors there, it didn't mean um, that as a result of that, every other uh, campaign finance statute was was unconstitutional. So at the end of the day, we were still left with a pretty bad situation. We still had Citizens United, but what our team did uh, was prevent that from being uh, a little bit worse. And I consider that um, a win for, for democracy. And, you know, frankly, that work there, it's really shaped how I look at being a political candidate. It's part of the reason why I'm one of only a handful of candidates across the country who voluntarily made a commitment that I'm not taking any money from corporate PACs, not $1, because I don't think corporate money has a role to play in politics. And it's why one of my top priorities, if I get elected, is going to be meaningful campaign finance reform so that we make sure the voices being heard in Washington are of individual constituents, the people of this country, not corporate interests and special interests. I I think that's something that's actually really important to the LGBTQ community in politics, because having money in politics does restrict the kind of person who can get into politics. Could you tell us about this dynamic and how you hope to kind of help open the floodgates to LGBTQ folks hoping to run for office? Well, first of all, I I think... um, LGBT persons across the country, if, if they have the desire, if they feel it in their hearts, um, that they should be representing their country, that they should be representing their communities, that if they should be engaging in public service, by all means, they, they should run. Um, 
the only kind of candidates who don't win in our country are the candidates who, who aren't on the ballot. And, um, you know, I have been just amazed at how well I have been received um, as an LGBT candidate. And I think the more that we are present in this country, part of the political discourse and the political dialogue, uh, the more commonplace it's going to be um, to have LGBT representatives uh, in local government, in state houses, uh, in Congress, and beyond. Now, when you look at campaign finance uh, and the role of money in politics, that's often a barrier for folks in the LGBT community, but it's, it's often a barrier for so many other groups of individuals, for minorities, for women, for, for working folks. And I think, frankly, um, that we need to be thinking about how we make our democracy more representative. And that starts with making it easier for a more diverse group of candidates to actually run. So if we reform our laws, if we reduce the role of big money, if we decrease the pressure on candidates to be raising exorbitant funds just to keep up with the money, dark money is pumping into our political system, then by definition, we're going to get um, a better, stronger, more diverse group of candidates uh, raising their hand and saying running for office is something I'm interested in doing. So I think something that a lot of folks find inspiring about your campaign is that you were running in a red district that went to Trump by nine points. I think a lot of people in positions of political leadership who aren't members of the LGBTQ community think that LGBTQ identity is an electoral risk. I think you're really disproving that. Could you tell us more about what it's like running in your district as an LGBTQ person and how you hope to inspire LGBTQ youth who do live in red districts. So, you know, I, I said it once just a few minutes ago and I'll say it again now because it's something I truly believe. The only candidates who don't win are candidates who aren't on the ballot. And when I was considering running for office, there were folks who cautioned me against it because I'm gay. There are also folks who cautioned me against it because I'm a woman or because I'm Jewish. But I have to tell you, my gut told me that my community was farther ahead than that bigotry. And my campaign has proven that to be right. Almost every campaign event that I do, almost every community forum, someone comes up to me afterwards and they say, my sister's like you or my son is like you or my cousin is like you and I am so proud of what you are doing to show that LGBT candidates are just like any other candidates out there. I remember we had an office opening a few months ago and a gentleman came up to me and he said, you know, I want to let you know I'm a lifelong Republican. I voted for Donald Trump. I voted for Brian Mast, who's currently my opponent. But he said, I didn't leave my party. My party left me. I don't know what they stand for. And by the way, my daughter, she's an awful lot like you. And then he pulls out an iPhone and he shows me a picture of his daughter and her wife and their beautiful twins that they just welcomed this year. And I thought, isn't this the essence of how our country is moving forward, that we're recognizing that we have so much more in common than that really separates us? 
And I got to tell you, when I'm out on the campaign trail, most of the time, people don't want to talk about my sexuality. They want to talk about the issues that are important to this community. They want to talk about health care and why our current representative has taken a vote that would have taken health care away from 74,000 of his own constituents. They want to talk about the environment and why he's in favor of a corrupt climate change denialist at the head of the EPA. They want to talk about common sense gun safety reforms because we're an hour north of Parkland and they don't understand how 96% of Americans can agree in universal background checks and we haven't done anything here. So that's what I talk about with folks for the most part on the campaign trail, not about the fact um, that I'm married to a woman uh, who happens to be amazing and incredible uh, and a source of, of joy in, in my life. But, you know, we, we focus on the issues here, but I, I am cognizant of the way that my campaign has been um, an inspiration to some folks. And that is deeply, deeply humbling to me every time I get an email from someone, particularly a young person, particularly someone who lives in a deeply red part of the country, who tells me that they're inspired to be their true self because of what I am doing. I know that I carry a great, great weight in responsibility uh, in my role, and it makes me even more determined to get elected and then when I am elected to fight for the rights and dignity of all Americans. So lastly, what message do you have to LGBTQ listeners who might want to run for office like you? My message is just do it. Just do it. And frankly, whether you're an LGBT person or you're a woman or you're a racial or an ethnic minority or any other group that isn't particularly represented in our elected officials today, uh, it will seem at the start like the odds are stacked against you. People might say you can't win um, because there haven't been candidates before who've looked like you've looked or thought like you've thought. Um, but our country is better when we run candidates and when we elect candidates who represent the great diversity of America. And we're only going to have meaningful change if people have the courage to stand up, to get in the arena and to fight. So my word to, to young LGBT persons who are thinking about running for office is just do it. And I will be here for you as, uh, as your mentor, as your ally, and as your biggest cheerleader, because we, we got to be in this together. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It was great to have you on again. Jordan, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you again and look forward to doing it again at some point in the future. Yeah, for sure. Now to our listeners... Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.